You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. We're going to be in Mark 14 today. If you don't know me, my name is Will. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, it is an honor to, to stand up here and preach. Um, I, I don't take that lightly. That's, a, that's an honor that God has given me. Um, and I am in no means worthy, um, but by grace, he has called me to this. And, and as we come to text after text after text at our church, we love going through books of the Bible verse by verse. Some of them are, um, some of them are more difficult than others. Some of them are uh, just easier to preach than others. Um, this is one of those that, that's a little bit easier to preach. Not that today's going to be an awesome sermon. That's not what I'm saying. Uh, but what I am saying is I think you're going to see the sweetness in the narrative. Um, the past two sermons have been covering Mark chapter 13, which deals with the destruction of Jerusalem and some prophecies that are quietly, uh, quite frankly terrifying that Jesus issues to his disciples. Um, in stark contrast to Mark 13 stands the beginning of Mark 14, where you have this sweet um, discourse and narrative of this woman who brings this anointing to Jesus. Um, and so this beautiful story is, is told in three of the four Gospels, and the fourth Gospel actually has a similar account um, that seems maybe this is another woman. Now, there's several different scholarly views um, because it is a little bit unclear on who these women are. Um, some people think that there are four different anointings. Some people think three. Some people think two. Some people think one. Um, I tend to think that there are two women who anoint Jesus at different times. I want to try to show you why I believe that to be the case. Uh, but I think using uh, Scripture to interpret Scripture, we can actually identify who this woman is and learn a little bit about her from the Bible. Now, uh, we're looking at Mark 14 today. Um, if you want to make a note just for further study in your small groups and um, on your own this week, um, the other three Gospels actually have an account that's very similar to this. Uh, Matthew chapter 26 and verses 6 through 13 that's Matthew 26, gives this account almost verbatim. Uh, the words are the same. The order of events are the same. Um, it is very clearly, to me, talking about the same event, the, the exact same thing that's happening. That's in Matthew 26. Now, in Luke 7, um, verses 36 through 50, you see a woman come in with an alabaster jar. So it's a very similar type of story. But in Luke, I think that Luke is telling the story of a different woman. Uh, the reason I think that Luke's telling a story of a different woman is because it takes place not in the house of Simon the leper, but rather a Pharisee. Um, they're in a Pharisee's home. It doesn't take place during the final week of Jesus's life, like, like this event seems to. Um, there are no other similar details other than the fact that it's a woman and there's an alabaster jar. Um, and, and Luke's account, uh, for that reason, I think, is telling the story of another woman, perhaps Mary Magdalene. Um, in, that, in that chapter, in that context, there's some uh, teachings about Mary Magdalene. Um, and so some people uh, suppose that that woman who anoints Jesus is Mary Magdalene. Now, in John 12, um, John 12, verses 1 through 8, you have a telling of a story again. Again, very similar. Um, a lot of the same details as Mark 14. Slightly different timing mentioned, which I'll explain that in a moment. Um, but I think John 12 describes... Uh, the same incident that happens in Matthew and Mark's gospel as well. So Matthew, Mark, and John, I think, tell of uh, one woman anointing Jesus, and Luke 7 tells of another woman anointing Jesus. Um, and, and so what I think is going on here is that potentially the woman that we're looking at today takes a cue from Mary Magdalene or whoever the woman in Luke 7 is. 
that maybe even hearing of that story, maybe even being present for that, um, she sees what an honor that was to Jesus and then takes that cue and follows after it. And, and that has application in and of itself. That when, when we are encouraged by other believers and when we spend time in life and in community with other believers, we're actually spurred on to do things that honor Jesus in a greater way. Um, I remember going to small group for the first time. I'd grown up in like Sunday school, and I remember going to small group for the first time when I was preparing, um, finishing up seminary, getting ready to plant a church, and going to a small group and actually seeing men in the small group and how they parent their children. Right? That's something I never saw at Sunday school class. And I remember modeling the way I would discipline my children after how I saw them uh, parent their children at small group. Um, and in the same way, uh, Mary um, is able to be an example for another woman. Now, in uh, Mark 14, verses 1 and 2, it tells us kind of the setting of what's going on at that time in the narrative. So to bring you back to where we are in Mark, we're uh, entering the the chapter 14, which is the last of the three chapters. Um, so there's three chapters remaining, which will take us to December. Now, it says that there are two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests are acting stealthily. It's like Mission Impossible stuff. So they're trying to figure out secretive ways to arrest and kill Jesus. Verse 2 says, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Now, I believe that Mark is giving a strategic cinematic flashback. In verse 3, he immediately goes uh, to saying, while he was at Bethany, uh, which if you look at the other Gospels, happens before he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. So I think Mark is using actually some creative, uh, cinematic, flashback, storytelling strategy here, which, is, which I love. I love that Mark is a good storyteller. And so he's flashing back. And, and so why would Mark want to jump back in the narrative to point out something that had already happened earlier? The reason is, is because this anointing is preparing Jesus for his death and his burial. Jesus tells us this in the passage. It's symbolic of the fact of what's about to happen. And so this is setting the stage for the crucifixion, which is what the last three chapters are going to cover. John's gospel in chapter 12 of, of the gospel of John, it reveals this woman to be named Mary as well. So if it wasn't confusing enough... Uh, this woman is also named Mary, so we're, we're going to be ultimately lost. Jesus' mom is named Mary. A lot of people name Mary, right? So it's hard. Um, but Mary Magdalene potentially being the woman in Luke 7, here in Matthew, Mark, and John, uh, we see that the woman who anoints Jesus in this occasion is Mary of Bethany. This woman, Mary, lives in Bethany. And because we are able to identify her, we're able to know a little bit about her, who she is, um, and her interactions with Jesus. Interestingly enough, the Bible only mentions her being uh, in close proximity with Jesus three times. The first account of Mary being in close proximity with Jesus is when, um, if you remember this story from Sunday school, if you went when you were a kid, uh, Martha, her sister, uh, she and her, and her sister Martha hosted Jesus for a dinner. And at that dinner, Martha is vigorously cleaning the house. You remember that? She's spraying Lysol everywhere. She's making sure Jesus is comfortable, that his drink is replenished. She could work at Chick-fil-A. She's saying, my pleasure. Like, she's really good servant. And she gets frustrated with her sister Mary because Mary is where? She's sitting at Jesus' feet listening to his teaching. All right? And she says, Mary, you're not helping me with the things that need done. And so the first account we hear of Mary of Bethany is her just being completely enamored by the teaching of Jesus, the Savior. The second time we see Mary is when her brother passes away. She had a brother named Lazarus, different from the department store you used to shop at. Lazarus was actually described as Jesus' close friend. 
Um, in the account of, of Lazarus dying, uh, this is where we're told Jesus weeps, even though he raises Lazarus from the dead. So Jesus comes and uh, off tour, he's been teaching and traveling, and he comes back to Mary and Martha's home where Lazarus had died, and he had been dead for three days, and Jesus raises him from the dead. Martha and Mary get to witness that up close and personal. And the third account we have of Mary of Bethany is what we're looking at today in Mark 14, is where she comes into a dinner. She breaks an alabaster flask of pure nard that is costly, and she anoints him with it. She pours it over him. And so I want you to learn four things from this narrative. Number one, that worship is costly. It, it causes you to give. Uh, secondly, that judgment is easy. We're going to see this modeled by the disciples as they cast judgment upon Mary. Number three, that the gospel is beautiful. Jesus teaches us this as he responds to her act of worship. And number four, the legacy of carrying out the gospel, that legacy is lasting. So let's look at point one. Worship is costly. Um, that Really, the theme of this sermon is to, is to really dial in and understand what worship is. Worship is not just the songs that you sing on Sunday. Worship goes much beyond that. If I could describe it in, in like an airplane, if the plane is worship, the two wings of the plane would be adoration and obedience. If you have just adoration, then you're a hypocrite. If you have just obedience, then you're a legalist. Um, to, to rightly worship God is to rightly respond to who he has truly revealed himself to be. And so to worship God, you have to have both wings of that plane. You have to have adoration and obedience. And it's modeled beautifully in Mary's worship. Um, a few weeks ago, I was in Virginia doing an assessment uh, for a church planter in Acts 29 network and we were gathered and we, did, we had an assessment interview and that night we just spent some time kicking back and hanging out together and, and sharing um, some time over a meal. And uh, one of the guys that, that I was at the assessment with began to talk about Bitcoin. Y'all know what Bitcoin is? I'm new to this. And so I was like, what is Bitcoin? I've heard of it, I don't really know what it is, but like you can invest in it, I think. And so he begins to explain it to me. And, and I just like, my eyes just glaze over. Like, I can't understand anything he's saying. And, and he can tell. And so he says, okay, let me explain it to you like you're five. And I'm like, yeah, great. That's the level I exist on. And so he begins to explain cryptocurrency and how Bitcoin was created and what it is. And I'm like, what do you actually have if you buy Bitcoin? Like, do I get a certificate or something? Like, what, what is this? And, and so he's explaining all this to me like I'm five. And I come out on the other end. I still don't know what it is. But I'm like, I want to invest in this because he's telling me like how much money he had made at it. I'm like, okay, where do I sign up? And, and what was funny about it is I have no idea what it is, but I'm willing to invest my money in it because um, it has a, a chance of a good return on investment, ROI. And, and what's, what's interesting about that is my willingness to invest in something that I don't even fully understand or appreciate, but if it'll give me a good return, then I'm willing to sacrifice for it, Right? That's called an investment, not worship. If we're not careful, we treat worship like an investment instead. It's like my dad um, has some money in the stock market, and I remember one time he, he told me that he invested money in Hot Topic. And I just thought that was funny that my dad invested in Hot Topic. Y'all know Hot Topic, right? Like the emo gothic store. But it's like, just because my dad invests in Hot Topic doesn't mean he's like painting his fingernails black and wearing eyeliner. Right? He's just trying to get a, a good ROI. He's trying to get a return on investment. That's not worship. 
Some of us treat Jesus like an investment. Matter of fact, in corporate America, the church has adopted a corporate view of the church, which is mostly not healthy. I've even heard of churches that call their members instead of members to call them investors. Let me make it clear. New Heights Church, you're not an investor. There's no return on your investment. You're not giving so that you can ultimately get something bigger in return. If that's why you come to church, if that's why you worship, if that's why you serve, then you're not a worshiper, you're a selfish investor. If your attitude is I'll give to Jesus so he'll bless me financially, or if I serve in the church so I can feel good about myself, or if I jump through sacramental hoops or, or say the sinner's prayer or do these things ultimately just so I can go to heaven and escape hell, then you're not worshiping. You're just investing. That's not worship. You see, in the equation, you're not the investor Jesus is. Jesus has invested in you. The payment that he paid in is a high price of his body and blood on a cross to pay the sin debt that you owed. And his return on investment is you. That he would receive glory from your life. That he created you in his image and you are his return. You see, worship is not an investment. It's a donation. It's a sacrifice. And Mary models this beautifully in the passage. She's not investing to get some kind of benefit or return from Jesus. She is giving sacrificially in an act of love and worship. Verse 3 says, While he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman, which we know to be Mary, came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Um, Listen, we don't know a ton about Mary of Bethany, but from what we can tell, she probably was not a woman of affluence. Um, She was probably single. She was probably young. She probably didn't have a whole lot, but somehow she has this alabaster flask full of ointment that is very valuable. Alabaster is a rare crystal-like rock that's soft, so it's able to be carved into things. And so this one was carved into a a flask or a vase that was sealed. Hers was sealed for kind of like a one-and-done opening. And it was filled with nard, which I think is a funny word, but I had no idea what it was. And Pastor Jeremy had to help me out. He's really into essential oils. So if you want to know more about Himalayan spike nard, Pastor Jeremy can fill you in. He loves this stuff. And it's healing abilities and whatnot. Um, but this Himalayan spike nard is what this, was, this alabaster jar was filled with. And it, it comes from the Asian honeysuckle plant. Now, I don't know essential oils, but I know honeysuckle. Amen? Like I, I know a little bit about that. I know the sweetness there. And so the oils that was compiled from that was made into this perfume, and it was imported. The reason that this was so expensive is because it was this imported perfume that couldn't be um, obtained anywhere nearby. And this sealed flask of perfume was most likely on Mary's shelf reserved for a dead body. This kind of anointing was reserved for two things, to anoint a king, which she would probably never have the privilege of doing, or to anoint a dead body. In Jewish culture, once they would bury someone, they didn't bury them in the dirt like we do, they would lay them in a tomb and they would uh, remove the stone of the tomb and go in and anoint the body because um, there were some ceremonies and some rituals that took place even after death and it would smell really bad after several days. Matter of fact, when her brother died, Lazarus, 
Um, the King James has one of my favorite uh, translations of that narrative when it says that Lazarus, and I quote King Jimmy, he stinketh. Um, after a few days of being dead, Lazarus stunketh. And, and, and we don't know this for sure, but maybe the reason she had the alabaster, uh, alabaster jar in the very first place was because her brother had died. Maybe this was on the shelf prepared to anoint her brother's dead body with, but Jesus rose him back from the dead, and she's like, well, I still got this expensive thing. Didn't have a return policy on it to India, and so she's got it. And so she brings it, and this beautiful act of worship is sacrificial. She brings this expensive thing because worship is costly. Now, you remember those three accounts of Mary that I told you about, I want you to observe her posture. I want to read three Bible verses from each of those three accounts, and I want you to observe Mary's posture in every encounter with Jesus that we know about of Mary of Bethany. Luke 10, 39, it says, Martha had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. John eleven thirty two. when her brother dies, now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. John 12, a parallel passage of this week's passage we're looking at, John 12, 3, says, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Mary's a beautiful example for us because she's always at the feet of Jesus. In times of peace, when Martha's mopping the whole house, she's at peace and she's sitting at Jesus' feet. In times of grief, where she's overcome with emotion, her brother's passed away, you find her falling where? At Jesus' feet. In times of worry, where Jesus has predicted his own arrest, we're told in the context that the, that the rulers are looking for a way to arrest him and kill him. And she's worried about him and worried about his safety. And at times of uncertainty and worry, where's she at? At Jesus' feet. So Christian, let me preach the same message to you this morning because you need to be reminded of it. When you are just at peace and everything's going great in your life, don't forget about Christ. Sit at his feet still. When you're grieving and you're hurting and things have all gone wrong and everything's falling apart, guess where you need to be? The feet of Jesus still. When you're worried about things or there's uncertainty in your life, guess where you need to be? At Jesus' feet. Mary gives us a beautiful example here that worship is going to cost us a lot and it's going to take great intentionality, but it's worth it for us to be at Christ's feet. That comes difficult. It's hard for us. It doesn't come natural. But you know what does come natural? Judgment. Judgment is easy, isn't it? This is what we see modeled not by Mary, but by the disciples. It's much more natural for us to judge than to worship. And we assume the worst in people instead of assuming the best in people. Mark 14, 4 says, There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? It's important the word that they use. They say it was wasted. To waste something means to expend a, a great amount of something on something that's of little value. To use something of high value to purchase something of little value is what we call waste. Um, in, in our home, the most common example of waste is buying Robux and Fortnite skins. Have you heard of these things? Because they're in my life way too much. Okay? Um, a Fortnite skin is like a character on the game Fortnite that you're going to run around and shoot people. 
but it just changes the way you look. It doesn't give you better weapons or anything. It's just like a pointless thing. And my kids want to spend money so they look different in the game. And I'm like, you're wasting your money. But I'll let them spend their own money because it ain't mine. I don't care. Um, right? But so much, so, I've preached them, to them so much about this that Judah has just embraced it. He doesn't even say, can I spend money on a Fortnite skin anymore? He literally comes up and says, Dad, can I waste some money on Fortnite? <laughs> Like, he acknowledges it's wasteful, and he's just going to do it anyways. <laughs> Dad, can I waste some money? Yeah, sure, buddy. But it's important what, what word the disciples use because they say that her action is wasteful. And what this means is either the, the ointment is not as valuable as it's portrayed to be, or Jesus is not as valuable as he's portrayed to be. But you see, no one doubted the value of the alabaster and the nard. They actually put a price tag on it in verse 5. They say, for this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. The number that they put, the price tag they put on this is, is just mind-boggling to me. Because like, I know, I know some, some people make some perfumes and colognes. And first of all, just the, the price that is paid for perfume and cologne is it almost like makes me sick anyways. But this would have been a modern day equivalent of about nine or $10,000 that Mary carried in this alabaster jar. Like this wasn't just like Britney Spears perfume. This was like, this was the best thing that money could buy when it comes to this. It was incredibly valuable. So you see the disciples understood the value of the ointment and to call it wasteful means that they misunderstand the value of Jesus. Inherently, they're saying Jesus is not worth nine or $10,000. Jesus is not worth 300 denarii. Jesus is not worth this ointment. You see, they rightly valued the ointment, but wrongly valued the Messiah. And they should have known something just from what they called their master. They called him Messiah in Hebrew, which means anointed one. They called him Christ in Greek, which means anointed one. That it was prophesied that Jesus would be the anointed one of God. That's what his title means. When we say Christ or Messiah, we're saying he is the chosen one of God. The one anointed, set aside for a task. In 1 Samuel 16, we see David being anointed as king. 1 Samuel 16, 13 says, Samuel took the horn of oil, so they have anointing oil, and they anoint him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David and from, uh, from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. What, what we see here is Samuel anointing the king of Israel. And they would anoint kings because it was symbolic of the fact that they would be protected by God. A shepherd would anoint sheep with oil had a very practical purpose. It would keep bugs and fleas and mosquitoes and things like that that would harm the sheep off. So they would pour oil over the head of a sheep. God symbolically commands his people to anoint uh, their leaders in the Old Testament in the same way. It was a symbol that showed that God's protection was upon them. And so you anointed kings and you anointed dead bodies. Jesus is both those to Mary. She's coming and bowing and acknowledging, Jesus, you are my king, and you are my king who will die for me. Jesus is anointed in the presence of his brothers, just like David is. These men who Jesus left his 
earthly brothers and mother for, whom he says, who are my mother and my brothers and my sisters, those who do the will of God? These are the 12 that he spent his ministry with, and we find them here scoffing at this woman. They scolded her, verse 5 says. The King James says they murdered, murmured at her. The New King James says that they criticized her. The NIV says that they rebuked her. The Greek word makes it clear that they were angry with her. Embromai means to be angry, so much so that you're willing to speak up about it. And so what this shows us is they weren't just merely disagreeing with Mary's actions. They're not just sitting back and being like, hey, you do you, but that's not how I would have done it. No, rather they are angry at her for what she's done. And what I want you to see is that that judgment came very easy to them. Hear me clearly. We'd all be better off if we kept our eyes on Christ in worship rather than on others in judgment. But our eyes too often wander away from the cross and wander to other people in judgment as we look around at others instead of looking to our Savior for our own lives. What God's called us to is a radical devotion to him and him alone. Danny Aiken in his commentary on this passage says this, and I love it. He says, the world will never have a problem with moderate measured devotion to Christ. What he means by this is that if you are a moderate worshiper of Jesus, no one's going to take notice of that. No one's going to care. Jesus calls us to turn the world upside down with the message of hope of the gospel. But if we worship, not just with poor worship, but with moderate measured devotion, the world has no problem with that. What will turn the world upside down instead is radical devotion to Jesus. I'm willing to give up $10,000 kind of devotion to Jesus. I'm willing to take the flask of ointment that was reserved for my dead brother who was raised from the dead, and I could sell it and make a killing and have a great return on investment, but I'm going to pour it on my king instead. That kind of radical devotion is what Jesus wants from his church. So judgment is easy, but instead of judging others, we should be giving our all to Christ. Point three, the gospel is beautiful. Jesus points out the symbolism and what's happened. It's, it's clear that the disciples don't understand what's happening. And so Jesus helps them as he often does to understand the symbol of what Mary is doing. What I love about this, absolutely love it, is that Mary of Bethany, who especially as who, someone who's most likely a single woman, would have had no standing in society in her time. In her culture, in her time, and in her place, she would have had no influence or importance. Uh, people would have looked down on her. But here we see her understanding the gospel in a clearer way than those closest to Jesus. It's beautiful. And she brings this symbol to Jesus, and Jesus acknowledges that it's right, and he has to explain it to the disciples. Now, symbols mean a lot. Right? Let me prove it to you. Um, I was coming back from camping yesterday, and this guy, he got mad at me for some reason. Still not sure why. But he, he reached his hand out the window, and I won't repeat what he did, but he, he took his middle finger and pointed it up to the sky. Right? And that made me mad. Why would that make me mad? If he put his pinky out, I'd be like, what are you, Dr. Evil? Like, I don't know what's going on. But because it was a particular finger that was up in the air, I knew that what he meant by that, and it made me mad. And then as he drove by angrily, I looked at his license plate, and he was from Ohio, and that explained everything, right? Just, now I get it, okay? Um, but the symbol behind it, right, it's, it's not the middle finger going up in the air that, and it's in and of itself that makes me mad. It's the meaning behind it that makes me mad. Symbols mean things, whether we want to admit that or not. 
The church has been given symbols in baptism and communion. We don't just worship bread and juice and water. No, we celebrate those things so much because there's so much meaning behind them. And in this narrative, nard was symbolic. This oil or this ointment or this perfume that was poured upon Jesus is symbolic of something. And Mary understood what it was symbolic of. It was symbolic of two things, that Jesus was her king, and namely what Jesus says is that she is preparing him for burial. Mark had actually recorded that Jesus had already predicted, very plainly said, that he was going to die and he was going to raise from the dead on the third day. He had predicted that three times before this incident. Mary had got wind of that. She understood that and she believed that, but the disciples were still struggling. Look at what Jesus says about her symbol and her action. Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The symbol is beautiful because of what it represents. She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. Now, Jesus is not saying don't help the poor. Jesus is saying that that's just not the objective at that moment. The objective was worship. In verse 8, he gives the meaning very plainly. He says, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Instead of jumping in and scolding her along with the disciples, instead he points out the symbolism that the disciples missed. And what they missed was what is of first importance, the gospel. They missed the predicted death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Paul defines the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15 as just that. Nothing more, nothing less. The gospel, the good message, the hope of your life if you're a Christian, the center message of your entire existence if you're a Christian is Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. That's it. That's what you're centered on. And what's crazy about the disciples missing this is it was sitting in their presence, not just in Jesus, although that is true, but also remember whose who's family they're hanging out with? Mary, Martha, and this guy named Lazarus. Lazarus is sitting there with them. We know this from John 12, verse 2. It says they gave a dinner for Jesus there. Martha served. Of course, what else would she do? Mary's bringing in this perfume, and it says, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. The disciples are literally having a meal, hanging out with a man who was in his own grave for three days and was raised from the dead. The resurrection is literally in their presence and they can't grasp what Mary is doing. Mary's seen it. Mary remembers the grief of what it was like to bury her brother, but she's seen the power of the resurrection and in faith she's coming to her savior and trusting in the gospel message, the death, burial, and the coming resurrection. And my exhortation to you, church, is don't miss it like the disciples did. Now, I know you've hopefully or probably never met anyone who's literally risen from the dead. But all around this room are people who used to be dead. The Bible describes you as being dead in trespasses and sins before God moved upon your heart and brought you to life and gave you faith to believe. And so I beg you, do not miss this. Sunday after Sunday, week after week, our tendency is to fall back into judgment and let this feel routine and just something that we do and to not be emotionally stirred or passionately moved by worship. But I beg you to remind yourself Lord's Day after Lord's Day after Lord's Day that you are gathering with people who have been raised from the dead. 
People all around you. Resurrection is all around this room. We see it in the waters of baptism and we anticipate it in the bread of communion. You're surrounded by resurrection. Don't miss it like they did. It's a beautiful thing. And so we see the gospel is beautiful. And then the last point, as I conclude, is that legacy is lasting. I love, I absolutely love what Jesus says about Mary of Bethany. It stands in such sweet contrast to Mark chapter 13, which is admittedly terrifying. We get to Mark chapter 14, and he says this beautiful statement about what Mary of Bethany does. Verse 9, he says, Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. You think about the magnitude of her sacrifice and worship. That Jesus says, wherever the gospel is proclaimed, that they're going to they're gonna tell about her. They're going to tell about what she did. And that's come true. The fact that I'm preaching about that story right now is further proving Jesus' statement true. Everywhere, by the way, for the past 2,000 years that preaches the Bible has come across this story because it's in the, in the scriptures. And so her legacy is lasting, and it's lasting in a good way that her posture of consistently throughout her life being at Jesus' feet is one that is carried throughout the ages. At Tailgate Church, I told you guys that in my vanity, when I get a new Facebook friend, I rush to my own timeline to scroll through and see what I've posted recently because I want to get a sense for what their first impression is about me. Y'all do that? I know I'm like, there's only a few of us that do that, but that's cool. Um, But I often think about that, and I know it's vain to to worry about what people think about you, but in some sense, church, I want you to worry about what people think of you, particularly when you're gone. I want your legacy to be one that honors Christ. What stories will people tell at your funeral? When you're dead and gone, what will be remembered about you? We have proof that what's remembered about Mary of Bethany is very favorable. But in the following verses, we're given yet another stark contrast. Look at verses 10 and 11, and we'll finish with these. The ending of this passage says, Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now, I've never really thought about um, the instance that led to Judas finalizing the decision in his mind to betray the Son of God. But in the order of events that's given in the scriptures, it makes sense that this event where Mary of Bethany comes in and seemingly pours out $10,000 worth of perfume onto Jesus was so enraging to him that it led him to actually go and initiate a conversation with those who wanted to kill Jesus. And I'm sure that Judas rationalized in his mind as he was carrying out this heinous plan that, that it was justifiable. Jesus is okay with this amount of waste in his kingdom. Jesus just doesn't understand the mission of the scriptures like I do. Jesus doesn't understand that we're supposed to overthrow Caesar. He doesn't understand that we're supposed to establish a kingdom here for God's glory. You see, we'll rationalize things in our error all the time. Everyone who walks away from a church or walks away from faith has a reason to do it. 
The reality is the reasons just aren't justifiable. We'll tell ourselves it is. Oh, or the church is full of hypocrites, or the church didn't care enough for me, or the church was too harsh with me, or what have you. And we'll walk away, but the reality is, is that our hearts are the main issue. Judas's problem wasn't Mary's wastefulness. Judas's problem was his own depraved and wicked heart. When Mary was generous, it slammed into the fact that Judas was greedy. When Mary was worshipful, it slammed into the fact that Judas was sinful. And what this shows us is Mary's legacy stood up against Judas's legacy. Couldn't be more different. Mary's is one of service, where Judas was one of status. He was one of the twelve. He had a seat at the table, quite literally, sitting with Jesus and Lazarus, having a meal here. This shows us that service is always greater than status. Our desire should not be for glory, but rather to bring glory to God. See, Judas had status, but he was far from Jesus. And Mary did not have the status, but she was close to Jesus at his feet, which is where we want to be. And of Mary, Jesus looked at her and said, her story is going to be told throughout the whole world. And of Judas, he said, it's better for him that he would not have even been born. So what's your legacy? And what I want to call you to in worship is to acknowledge worth rightly. The word worship, which is what we see Mary demonstrating and teaching us so well today, the word worship is derived from an old English word that means worth. And so when we worship God, again, in the adoration and obedience, we are ascribing to God what he is actually, truly worth. And we can't put a number on that. This is what Mary understood. She understood, I cannot put a number on it, and if I could, I could not afford it. So I'm going to take the most valuable thing I have, and I'm going to give it in worship. As you come to the table today, we want to invite you to take communion with us as a church. We do it every Sunday. Again, so those symbols can be reminders of the truth behind those symbols. So if you're a baptized Christian, we invite you to take communion today. And as you come to the table, we're going to be singing. I want you to sing, and I want you to be in your mind just thinking about the worth of Christ. Because we don't have anything that in actuality shows the worth, right? The bread and the juice are relatively inexpensive. Our budget is small in comparison with heaven's glory. But what this represents is something of infinite worth that you could never purchase. You could never invest enough to get on your own. It has to be something that was given to you. And so in response, you give your entire life to this hope, this message, this gospel. And this gospel is the fact that Jesus loved you enough to lay himself down, to drink in the wrath of God on your behalf, to give his body and to give his blood on a cross, to be buried in a tomb, and to be raised from the dead for your justification, to make you right with God. And if you've never received that, I invite you to just take this time today to contemplate that, think about that, repent of your sin, and repentance is all you need to do, and you will be adopted into this beautiful family of believers we call the church. But if you have received that, I invite you to just dwell on that together with us. Sitting around people who've been raised from the dead, can you just dwell on the fact that what a high price was given for you. 
what else could you do but give your entire life? We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.